if you don't take people on this journey with you, then you're going to be standing alone in the woods and nobody's going to be able to help you. You need everybody to be bought into what you're doing. Sometimes that takes time. Most entrepreneurs are very impatient people and just want to get it done, 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 done. And some of these things, if it involves people, you need to take them on the journey and you need to be willing to invest the time to get them on that journey. That's Max Rafaga, the founder of Finimize, a media company that helps people manage their money better. It came out of an experience Max had after he sold his previous company and wondered what the hell he was supposed to do with his newfound money. It does blow my mind how little we're taught about personal finance in schools. Why was I learning Latin when I could have been learning about ISIS? I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is Secret Leaders from Kindling Media, the place to learn from top founders. Max is pretty impressive. He's now the youngest exec at a FTSE 100 company, having sold Finimize to Aberdeen. And it all started for Max in Berlin, before the city became cool. I had a very happy childhood. I grew up uh, in most of my life in Berlin. I grew up in the area that in Berlin used to be the American sector, hence why I have this slightly American slang. Uh, and so I did stuff like play baseball and uh, you know do a lot of American things. And was always pretty interested in computers through my dad because he gave me exposure to very early on to to computers. Yeah, I had had a I think a very very happy childhood living living in Berlin. Okay, and living in Berlin, you know, describing that to uh, the uninitiated, you know, it's obviously got Berghains and raving culture and all of the things that people assume about Berlin. But I think that might be more like you know the tourist perception of coming to Berlin. What's it actually like as a, as someone living there? Is it is it the same? Yeah, so I mean, the funny thing is, like, first of all, I always like to say, hey, I left Berlin when it started getting cool, um, because the reality is when I was growing up there, none of the stuff that today people come to for existed. I mean, the, even the areas, like not today, if you were to move to Berlin, you would move to an area that when I was growing up there was, there was nothing, like absolutely nothing was there. Uh, I think then sort of in, when I was in middle school, high school, all this stuff started to develop and evolve. Um, but the reality is that you, you don't really go to these places that much when, you, when you're that young. You, I think probably when I was at university and I would come back home, that's when I started going there. Uh, that's when, when all this stuff started really happening. But growing up there was, uh, there was very limited that would hap- stuff that would happen in, that, in those areas. So talk to us a little bit about computers. I understand you're a bit of a geek. So my dad was always really interested in computers. And he was like one of those guys who was one of the first people to have a laptop. And the laptop was the size of a suitcase larger than EasyJet would allow you on the plane uh, as a carry-on. That was a laptop. And he would set it up in my room. This was like sort of hand-me-down. I would play video games, essentially computer games, um, on uh, Microsoft DOS for those of you who remember what that was. And I remember I played a game called Reader Rabbit and another math game. And I was always really just fascinated by it. Uh, I can't explain to you why, but I had a fascination by it. And that then you know, went on and went on into my teenage years where then the World Wide Web came. And I had this very, very vivid memory of the day that my parents got a dial-in uh, internet connection. And I would have to go down and tell my mom, hey, you know, for the next 10 minutes, you can't, be on the phone and okay and then we would sort of would replug it and then I would go online and there really wasn't that much but uh, you know you would download music and that was fascinating and I think that's what really really then shaped 
a lot of my life is that experience when I was a when I was a teenager playing around with the internet and had a lot of freedom, you know. And uh, the cool thing that I will add there is. One of the things that I notice is today people talk about the crypto space being, hey, this is like the early days of the web. And for me, I can see where they're coming from. But I think the beauty, the thing that I really appreciated about when the web became a thing was there was a certain innocence and authenticity to it. There was nothing with money. It was just literally like, hey, I can do this because I can do this all of a sudden. You know, I can I can put this in onto the web because I can create a website all of a sudden, you know? It reminds me of this um, this author called, or this thinker, I guess, uh, part of the movement in the 60s, uh, Ken Kesey, I think he was. Uh, they went on this, these LSD acid trips, right? And they would do experiments, like they would take these tubes and like they would sit in a circle and they would like each take one end of the tube and then the whole experiment was I would talk into one one end of the tube and then you would ha- listen to it and you just wouldn't know who you were talking to or who you were listening to. And then they were like, and we just did it just to see what happens. And those guys obviously were also then the ones who really created the internet for those people who are familiar with internet history. And I think that it was that sort of ethos that I just found absolutely fascinating. And that's what got me started in in this whole internet space. So talk to me a little bit about business then. What led you into the life of entrepreneurship? Like, how did you get started? Talk to me about your journey. So here's the interesting thing, I think, is that I never aspired to be an entrepreneur. So I was never the kid in school who had like a lemonade stand and and all that stuff. Um, I did have exposure to entrepreneurship really early on because my dad was an entrepreneur. And so I, I saw a the freedom that that brought, but also obviously the restrictions that that brought. Uh, you know, going on a holiday and like never being able to shut off, etc. So I had exposure to that, but I was never like, oh, I want to start a company. Uh, I think what got me into this whole thing was what I was talking about earlier, which is I just really, really, really loved the internet, <laughs> and I wanted to work in the internet uh, space. And at the same time. I also really, really, really love independence. It's like a, I think a recurring theme of my life that it's just something I incredibly value. And so I guess on a very simple level, if you put those two things together, then you become an entrepreneur in, in the digital space. And that's what I ended up doing. I did my first website when I was maybe like 14, 13, something like that. I did it on geocities.com. I, I built it in Dreamweaver, uh, proper old school by now. And I didn't have anything to say. Um, and so I needed to figure out what content do I put out there. And so I had a book that my that I think I got for Christmas or something. The, the entire book was just Bart Simpson jokes. That was the book. And so I, I would sit, again, me being by myself, I would just sit in my room and I would I typed off all the all the Bart Simpson jokes, and that was my website. And then I started getting into stuff like putting certain JavaScripts on there. Like, for example, if you went on my website, uh, the cursor had one of those tails that followed it around and you could customize it and just stuff like that. That was I really enjoyed that. I then uh, went to university and I studied economics and international relations. And what happens at a at university is that you go to these careers fairs and every and, and there's basically all these big finance firms and consulting firms and, and big corporates. And I was like, okay, like I'll go check those things out. And, and I interned in, in a couple of those over the summer. I interned in consulting and, and, and a bank and kind of checked it all out. And then my final year, I interned in Berlin at eBay. 
And that was back in the day when eBay was still a thing. And there I was realizing that, hey, like this is really what I care about. Something to do in the online space. And then what happened was I, I realized that everybody within eBay who had something to say, who had an interesting position previously was at a consulting firm. And so I thought, okay, well, I guess I need to go to a consulting firm and then I can work on the internet and stuff. And so straight out of uni, I uh, worked at a consulting firm which was focused on the TMT sector. So a lot of telco, technology, media, sports, and did a lot of payment stuff there as well. And it was cool. But what I found was on the side, I would always meet with a friend, uh, had a couple of friends who we would just jam some ideas. One of them was this social network idea that we had. Uh, then we had this other idea of, that we nearly ended up doing where we said, hey, what if we buy or rent a chocolate factory? We customize chocolate and then we sell customized chocolate over the internet. And I was like... I never eat chocolate, but let's do it. Sounds cool. And uh, I mean, never get high on your own supply. So, you know, if you've got a rare person that doesn't eat chocolate, you're the perfect exactly. person to start that business. Yeah, maybe I should have done it in hindsight. But for me, actually, what I, what I, we, we looked at a bunch of uh, chocolate factories. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous to say it. And we found one that we liked. And then we were like, okay, do we really want to do this? And then I had to admit to myself, nah, I'm just really not that into chocolate. I don't think I would enjoy this. But... I definitely want to do something. And then with that person that I had explored this chocolate idea, uh, we ended up building or, or starting an e-commerce uh, business. And that was then my first business. Uh, I was like 20, 24, 23, 24. Um, and then that started my whole entrepreneurial journey. How did it go? It was cool. It was a lot of fun, a lot of work. Uh, so I was 24. Uh, I obviously didn't really know it, anything about anything. But you obviously thought you knew everything about everything because you were 24. Exactly. And all the things that I thought contribute to success, I now think actually is the inverse. <laughs> so we were just working 24-7, like literally Monday to Sunday, had pretty boring lives, I guess you could say, but got a lot done. Um, and then ended up building one of the largest e-commerce businesses in continental Europe. And then we, we, we sold it uh, to a media house. Uh, and I was like 28 um, at the time. And then, you know, encountered this problem that led me to start Finimize, which I'm happy to talk about. But uh, the e-commerce e gig for me was a fantastic, fantastic learning experience because the beauty about e-commerce is that it's a very, very operational business and you really get to learn all the operational sides, uh, side of things. And we were scaling pretty quickly. So I, I went through that. We went from like zero to 200 people back down to 150 and uh, really learned everything, kind of learned, I would say, the, 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 the craft, if you will, of entrepreneurship. But it was a mercenary business or a mercenary endeavor for me. I did not wake up in the morning and say, today I want to sell more products. It was a job at the end of the day, right? And now I'm really, really into building mission-driven companies because that's what gets you out of bed in the morning. But as a first company, it was a phenomenal experience, took a lot of lessons in, in terms of what to do, but also, which we can talk about, what not to do. As you reflect on on that part of the journey, like how does it feel waking up every day and not feeling an intrinsic motivation to actually get up and do the work? Well, I think the intrinsic motivation there was we were just really, really driven. And so it was like we had these KPIs and we wanted to like improve the KPIs and we wanted to hit them. 
But at the end of the day, it was like, we're probably not going to leave a huge impact on the world by doing this. <laughs> so I think we were, we, there was a lot of, uh, I guess you could say intrinsic motivation just to become a better entrepreneur, a better company builder, a company runner. Uh, not so much, it wasn't so much tied to that specific company, if that makes sense. Okay, you talk about, you know, you, you built it to become one of the biggest e-commerce players in continental Europe, which is quite an amazing thing to be able to say. Let's talk about numbers. What stage did you get it to? How did you exit the business? How was that for you personally, financially? And, you know, what is it about that experience that then led you to start Finimize? We basically, the way that what happened was that we started off with a daily deal model, so the Groupon days. We very quickly then... Not pivoted, but um, extended, diversified away from that. Uh, saw that this is uh, going to be difficult to build a sustainable business from, uh, and moved into full-on e-commerce. So we built our own warehouse. We had our own supply chain. We took inventory. You know, all the stuff of a full-on e-commerce business. Uh, and we were doing like a hundred million in revenue by the end, uh, over actually a hundred million in revenue, and uh, pretty close to, or actually, I think we were break-even at the time. And now the company is doing more than 100 million and is profitable. So it still continues to run, which is actually pretty cool. And what happened was that I think it just gives you, I think that, you know, the financial side personally didn't really impact my psychology or, or my frame of mind very much. It, I think if anything, that kind of experience gives you confidence. And I think confidence paired with a certain naivete are very, very powerful ingredients when starting a business. And that's what started, what led me to start Finimize. It actually happened one or two years before we sold the company. I remember, like, I think my parents were like, okay, so listen, you're, you're running this company, uh, it's going well, but you do need to, we, we hadn't like sold any shares or anything, you do need to uh, start building up some savings when you're 30, you know, life changes, blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, fair enough. And I set up a standing order from my, from my salary onto a savings account and just had that running in the background. And then one day I looked at my savings account and I, and I realized, you know what, actually, I have some savings now. That's, that's, that's a pretty cool feeling. And this very immediate follow-up question was, cool, so what, like, what now? What do I do? <laughs> I knew one thing, having studied economics, that you needed to look at the interest rate and the inflation. And I realized pretty quickly, hey, very similar to today, the interest rate I was getting was lower than the inflation. And so basically, by doing nothing, I was losing money every day. And so I went to go speak to advisors, I went to go see my bank, etc. And I was just like, ah, this is not cutting it for me. It's not really doing it for me. Uh, they were in this sales mode, they were trying to sell you their, their financial products without actually really knowing you. And long story short, I came to this realization that, you know what, at the end of the day, this person I'm speaking to is regurgitating something that someone smart behind the scenes in the research team came up with and then condensed and then gave to the salespeople or, or advisors. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, advisors are kind of salespeople. Why can I not just go to the research person myself and get the information directly? Like, why do I need this, this person in between? And that got me thinking, you know, coming back to this whole internet thing, you know, like if, if there's one thing that the internet has, has shown us, it's that information asymmetries will be broken down and are not sustainable. So I'll give you one, one specific example where this happened, travel. Back in the day, you would go book, I don't know, you'd go to Spain or something with your family, your parents would go or you would go into a travel agent, they would type something into a computer, then they would say, hey, here, I booked your travel. Then Expedia, Booking, Kayak, all those guys came along and they said, 
you know what? Actually, all we're going to do is we're going to take the screen, we're going to turn it around, and now you, dear customer, can look at that screen yourself and you do not, no longer need to go to the travel agent. And I thought exactly the same is going to happen in the finance space, right? And so I was like, okay, can we take valuable investing information and insights and put that into the hands of the end consumer to ultimately empower them to make smarter decisions? That's what got me onto this journey of Finimize. So at Finimize, we were building the leading information platform and community for modern investors. Um, and so what is a modern investor? A modern investor is uh, really, in, in our, based on our research, has three attributes. Number one, they're time poor. They don't want to spend hours and hours reading research reports or stuff like that. You know, we are trained, our minds are trained by Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, etc. We want stuff in bite-sized. That's the first thing. The second thing is they're incredibly community-driven. They put as much value and emphasis on what their peers say as what an analyst might say. Uh, and then the third piece is they're incredibly action-oriented. So rather than reading a 500-page report around, for example, Amazon, they're just going to put 500 pounds through fractional shares into Amazon stock and get some skin in the game and learn by doing. And for that audience, for that, basically, the, way, the simple way to think about it is it's the investor who, who has grown up with a smartphone in their hand as opposed to hunched over a computer. And that's, that's who, who, we're, who we're building for. And, and how do we do that? Well, we have two core pillars. Uh, the first thing is we have a very, very talented team of analysts who we poached from Goldman, Fidelity, Schroeders. They come and work for us and they share all of their knowledge and insights and bite-sized nuggets, if you will, um, with our community through text and audio. You can consume our content in, through a newsletter and through a mobile app. And then the second piece is we have an incredibly active community. We actually by far are the largest financial gathering in the world. Uh, last year, more than 70,000 people connected at Finimize meetups. And the cool thing about this is that this is all organized by members, right? So I think we have two people working on our community team who scaled this from 10,000 to 30,000 to 70,000, and this year to over 100,000 people meeting at the meetups, all because people from our community are organizing meetups and connecting with each other and helping and exchanging ideas, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's what we're building, that's what we're doing, and hopefully that, that does a good job of, of explaining it. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. 
But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because um, when you're trying to build a community, um, and it's something that I've got some experience in doing myself, it is so helpful to have, you know, the magic, the secret source, and I'm not trying to minimize, um, if you will, or take away from uh, your astounding accomplishments. But it's amazing if you are lucky enough to have a really powerful, motivating reason why, right? So you look at some of the great communities out there, the ones that solve a real problem for people are the ones where you naturally can rely on some deep connection happening, which is always, you know, it's the leaky bucket thing, you know, it's impossible to get a 100,000 community if every time you add 10, 9 leave. You know, you look at something like Mumsnet, one of our guests, you know, you talk about parenting and mums, incredible motivator to stay in the community, constantly be learning, sharing, helping others, continuing to learn. Money is another thing. You know, there are just some areas in life where, yes, you absolutely need a good business model. Yes, you need smart, intelligent people building that business. However, like, you know, having the right category to build a powerful community around is, uh, you know, the secret part of the magic source that people often miss. And, you know, I'm the first one to, to, to admit this. It was never the plan to build a community. I'd love to say I was this genius person sitting there saying, hey, we're building a community. That thing just happened. Uh, and I think what we did well in hindsight is we leaned into it. But there was something there that there was like this spark that happened. One of the things that I always realized is like, you, oftentimes the best things are the things that you didn't plan and you just have to run with it. And this was one of the examples. And you know, and ultimately, you know, that's, that's being an entrepreneur, isn't it? It's um, having some tests out there and, and just observing the data and seeing what looks like it's catching fire. And, you know, the difference between experienced or inexperienced founders or often, you know, as blunt as good or bad founders is... Yeah, sure, you want the business to be a certain way, but if the data are saying it's going to be a different way and you ignore it, then sadly, you know, might find yourself compromising the actual possibility of having a big business. Yeah, and and and, and there's data, and then there's also just gut feel. Uh, so the way that our community started was we said, hey, let's all meet in a, in a pub. And the entire pub was filled with finomized people all of a sudden. <laughs> And I mean, I didn't have any data. I was just, this is, there's something, I mean, this is not normal. There's something quite magical here. And that's what, what made us lean in. Actually, one of the finomized mantras that we have, uh, listen to the data, but follow your gut. I think that's, uh, that's one of the key lessons that, that I always try to instill in the organization. I'd love to have been the first person buying that round in that pub, being like, yeah. right, what, what, is, what are my potential yeah. returns on this? Is it going to be worth it? Am I taking a dent here? Yeah, everything has to be considered. Okay, so talk to me then about your journey with Finomize. Um, That's how it started. But like, you know, you mentioned this sort of class of person that you're building for. I shared a little bit about my own personal 
position, I suppose, my own personal education around finance. I don't know if it's a British thing or um, maybe you can you share some insight for me, but I just feel it's not something like basic skills in, in finance, basic skills in adulting in general, just not things we're taught. Left to your parents, I have amazing parents, but they never really taught me this stuff. And maybe that is also a function of, I don't know, you, you're coddled until you're sent off to uni and then you kind of go to uni and you're like, oh my God, like I have to do everything myself. I don't actually understand half of it. And yeah, I feel like unless you really study economics, you just never really get to grips with the fundamentals. Like learning maths is not the same as understanding finance. I understand maths just fine and I could do a business model absolutely fine. I run a business, I get it, but I don't consider myself financially literate. And that is ridiculous to me. I mean, it feels like a big steep curve. So is that because I'm British? Is that because it's me? Is that something that you are familiar with broadly in your with your hat of Finomized community owner on? No, I think it's just you. <laughs> Joking. Um, <laughs> no, I think this is a, a global... I don't have like a, a, a clear answer as to why this is. Um, I think it's, there's obviously a big systemic thing that happens in schools. You know, I think... There's a lot. There's a big fear of failure and mistakes, and you know, if you want to get into some finance world, there will always be some failure mistakes. Otherwise, you know, you'd be better than Warren Buffett in predicting what's going to happen. So I think there's something very systemic there, but, but I also think there's a uh, there's a very cultural aspect. So I think the and this is vastly generalizing, but but I think kind of if you go from continental Europe, probably even more of a savings culture than you have in the UK. And then you go across the pond into the US, you have there probably much more of an investing culture. So I think there's also really a cultural element there. And I really always see this uh, specifically in UK, Europe, um, with the way that the regulatory environment is, etc. There's this, I think, instilled fear. There's a risk here. And it's like, Yes, there is a risk, but there's also a risk to you just doing nothing and 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 losing money by by losing it to inflation or or what have you. And so I think there's more as a as a society that we need to do to not perhaps paint it always as as black and white as 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 we do. Um, yes, if you want to have an upside, you need to take some risk. That's just that's not a, a finance thing. That's a life thing, right? And if you take a calculated risk. And you have a long, long enough time horizon, et cetera, et cetera, then you should be taking that risk. In fact, it's it's a risk if you don't take the risk. And so I think that's a that's a very difficult thing to teach people, to instill people. And so I think the, the if you had if I had to pin it down, it's it's very fear-driven. People are fearful of losing money, people are fearful of making mistakes. And the reality is. Without that, it's impossible. Uh, you need you need to have some sort of risk appetite, and it can be minimal, right? It can be minimal. Uh, and I think once people get over that hurdle, and they accept that this is not we're not living in a world of perfect information here, things will not work out as I expected them to. But in the long run, if I do this in a calculated, diversified, thought through way, I think this is worth taking a shot. So. That's probably in a very unstructured way how, how how I would think about this. Yeah, okay, that's very thoughtful. Thank you. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about the journey then. So, unusual, I guess, unusual pitch. Did you have to raise money? Like, how did you go through your journey? Like, talk to us about how you build 
a business like this? The vision, who do you go to, to to help build it? And how did you build it through the years Like and where as well? I, th- I think that's one of the things also that uh, entrepreneurs need to, need to reflect on is um, because venture capital is, there's an abundance of it, the default move is to say, hey, I need to go raise venture capital. I think people need to be a bit more thoughtful of that because certain models do not need venture capital. Others do, but I think sometimes people do it maybe to de-risk it for themselves. But I think that would be the first step, always you know, really thinking about, you know, do I need to do this? In, in, in our instance, um, there was certainly, I think, a mix of both. We probably could have done it without without raising venture capital. I think the, the, the model that we have would have lent itself to doing so. Equally, I think raising money, we ended up raising money. We didn't raise a lot of money at all, uh, but we ended up raising some money from fairly notable investors, both on the venture capital side and on the angel side. And what that does is it allows, it has a certain signaling effect, I would say, towards hiring people. And that's definitely something that that we benefited from. We were able to hire incredible people. And I think having that, like I say, signaling that there's people who are of noteworthy status in the tech scene or whatever you want to call it, I think gives people a certain confidence that they're not seeing something that perhaps uh, nobody else has seen. That was one thing. Um, so we raised a little bit of capital. And then we the way that we did this basically was we had a very simple product. We had a newsletter, and the newsletter was two most important stories of the day within finance, explained in three minutes, not using any jargon. And we we just kept growing that. We didn't do any marketing. We were very sort of, I guess, hustler mentality there. Uh, we would go to universities. We would literally, in the rain, stand outside of the library or the career center. And like, I would literally hand people my iPhone and be like, hey, can you sign up to this newsletter? And, and so we grew that way. And then sort of in parallel, that, that what that did is that, that sort of building up this audience. And with that audience, in parallel, we were, we were able to test a couple of products. We actually originally, the original pitch for Finimize was we, we, we were going to take this audience um, that then later on turned into a community and we were going to build a financial planning tool for them. And we actually built this into, into an alpha and then beta and then we killed it um, because we realized this isn't going anywhere, <laughs> or certainly this isn't going where we want it to go. Let's put it like that. It was kind of this like interesting slash weird setup where like on the one hand we had VCs who were like, okay, you need to execute and like get to the next round. And on the other hand, we were like in this very sort of creative, free spirited mindset almost where we were just testing and iterate. We went through multiple iterations on our on our actual like product product besides the newsletter uh, until we reached the product and the mobile app that we have today. Uh, That took us a couple of turns. And then once we had it, we really doubled down on that and uh, uh, were able to to grow both on the business side and on the user side, etc. But but, uh, there was a lot of experimentation going on in the the background. So in your experience, reflecting back, what do you think the, the main ingredients were to your success? I would say two things. I think the, the, the first thing was just pure resilience, grit, persistence, hustling, whatever you want to call it. That was interestingly one, one of the feedbacks when we sold the company uh, from one of our key investors was like, your team is a proper hustling team. And, and so that was one thing. Um, I think a lot of people in these iterations, as we were building the product, I think perhaps a lot of other teams and 
founders and teams, etc., probably would have given up. Uh, and we said, no, 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 like we feel like there's something there. Let's continue. And then I think the second thing is we were incredibly, incredibly close to our users and uh, to the point where we would literally physically meet them every single day of the week through some form of meetup that was happening. And I think that probably, in hindsight, gave us this confidence that like we understand the users, we understand what their pain points are, we understand what we can build for them. And we were really, really close in, in, with these iterations on, on the product development that I was talking about. We did those together very, very much with our community. And I think those two things combined uh, allowed us to, to really figure things out and, and head, head for success. What about funding rounds and valuations? So, you know, you mentioned VCs and taking in money. When you're, you know, giving advice to other people, and when you're sort of reflecting on some of the wins in your journey, where do you where do you think about like you know um, raising the right amount of money for where you are in your journey versus hyperinflated valuations, and ultimately what that does to creating an ultimate reality, which I'm going to come on to in a moment, which is you know selling your company and becoming someone else's employee. I think part of my thought there is what I was alluding to earlier, as I think founders and entrepreneurs need to be, I think it needs to be a much more conscious decision. Do I want to take on cap, venture capital? Do I maybe want to go angels only? Do, do I maybe want to go to family offices because I, I kind of just need silent money and, and I just want to execute? I think the default does not always have to be going for venture capital, even though that is the sexy route, undeniably. That is the sexy route. Everybody has these sweet dreams at night, lying in bed, and, and they're the TechCrunch article, and, and, and uh, some famous VC invested a mega round, and you're the star. But the reality is, uh, you need to grow into those valuations, and then you need to deliver. Some people realize that, and they like to play that game, and I personally know a few people who like to play that game, and they're very good at playing that game, but I think they secretly also understand it is a game they're playing. And then I think other people perhaps don't understand that and are not very good at playing the game or don't want to play the game. And, you know, for, for me personally, what I really, really enjoy is building the product and building the community. From a personal point of view, I do not enjoy going out and, and pitching to investors. It's just not something I get joy out of. I know other people, other founders, it's a thrill for them. For me, it was a chore. Oh my God, now I have to go. And so like we were always, we were always very, very strict internally and, and, and always wanted to be self-sufficient. So uh, if we raise venture capital, we want to raise venture capital because we want to and we want to take it to the next level. What we do not want to do is raise venture capital because otherwise the company will not survive. And those are two very different mindsets. And like I said, both work. It's a personal preference. My personal preference is you have a business that runs and you take on additional capital to boost it, but you're always, it's a fine line that you always have to play. And, and venture capitalists will push you to spend more, to grow faster, because obviously, you know, for them, it's a pretty binary bet. And, and this is what I always, you know, I've said this to, to venture capitalists, my own, and to other founders. As a founder, for the venture capitalists, in a very, very objective world, you are one of a couple tens, hundreds of bets that they have placed. If you're the founder, this is the one bet that you've placed. <laughs> you've spent maybe five to 10, 15, whatever years, this is the one bet you've placed. And so to a certain degree, 
would need to be in control of that bet. I think it's really great advice and it's great insight. Um, you know, it's basically exactly where I am with my company Heights. We try really hard to avoid funding rounds. And we are, you know, reflecting on my own board meeting this morning, you know, a board asking, you know, when do you think you'll do your next round? And we're like, at the point where we don't need to is the ideal answer to that question. Because um, A, you know, old me, it's a foregone conclusion that I want to do a big VC round and, you know, have a hard on as soon as I see my name and TechCrunch and all the other bits and pieces when you are the star for 12 hours until people move on to the next thing. But, you know, uh, older, more experienced me uh, really thinks that all that stuff is performative bullshit for 95% of the time. And actually, the goal is to create a, a successful business that has an impact. But for, for me, anyway, and obviously for a lot of entrepreneurs, it is. Playing that game um, and understanding when you get to a point in your life where you really do mean that, so you're not just saying it to sound wise and like you've grown through stuff, but when you actually mean it, then changes how you build the business, changes how you operate the business and means that, you know, ideally, you know, I'm doing building in public with heights the whole time. So we so far on track, but we ended last year at two and a half million pound of um, ARR and our target this year is 10 million. And so far we're on track. And the target at 10 million is to be able to do a funding round if we want to, but ideally to say no to it. But, but it's exactly the point of like, you know, but if we make it to 10, like we won't need to do a funding round, which means that it can become a very sensible decision of will it help us do things we wouldn't otherwise be able to do at some kind of scale that wasn't potentially in our view otherwise. And it's so completely different to what you just said, which is like, we have to do this or we die. Yeah. And the perverse thing in, in this whole thing is if you build the business, uh, and there's always exceptions to the rule, but like, I think I, I would say as a general statement, if you build the business where you don't need the money, that's probably when everybody wants to give you the money, right? Of course it is. You know, I'm, I, I spend so much of my time now, it's hilarious, but it's been so, obviously I, we, took, we took investment to get off the ground, for sure, don't get me wrong. We, we raised four and a half million pounds, so it's not like I'm trying to pretend I'm anything I'm not. We have raised money, but all that being said, you know, that was a lot of outbound and a lot of hustling through the pandemic because we sadly launched January the 6th, 2020. So, you know, my timing hasn't been spot on, but managed to get through it anyway. And in reality, um, you know, now it's different um, where, you know, it's all inbound and me saying, hey, I'll get back to you next quarter. I'll get back to you next quarter because there just isn't the motivation to take the funding on too early. And I'm, I'm a realist as well. I've also run a business that failed. So I also know what it looks like to take money at the wrong time. I know what it looks like to take money um, from venture capitalists when you don't have the upper hand in negotiation. Um, you know, everything everything is about leverage. Like, come bring it back to financial terms. Um, leverage, funnily enough, something that I've only recently learned about in the last year from a financial point of view, which probably sounds very late, but never had any particular reason to learn about leverage. But, you know, the leverage is this magical thing that all, all, all starts to make sense once you get into negotiation with investors. If you have it and you're willing to walk away from any deal, you can have much better conversations. If you don't have it and you know you need the money... Negotiation's pretty narrow. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, that's with every negotiation in life, but, the, but but I guess here the stakes are so high because for most of us, this is our life, <laughs> the company that we're pouring everything into it. And so uh, totally agree with what you said. You just have to be much more thoughtful. And I think there's also a maturity process, right? Like the more mature you get, the, the less these like flashy things, the bling bling of, of you know the headlines, et cetera, mean to you. 
and the more it's about building the best businesses. And, you know, I think there's some, some phenomenal case studies or examples coming out of Europe, uh, like at checkout.com, right? I mean, I don't know those guys. I just read on the, in the press, uh, Bravo, chapeau. I mean, that is that is how you do it, right? You build a phenomenal business and then you can raise money. And from what I read, they don't even need the money. They, they just have it because they need it so that they can sell it to their clients. Hey, we need we have a lot of cash in the bank. That is how you should build a business, uh, in my view, right? Uh, and, and again, at the end of the day, it's a philosophical and, and personal preference thing, but uh, that's how to do it. So just in terms of going through an exit process then, like why did you sell the business? Um, how did the exit process unfold for you? Were you actively engaged? Was it all inbound? Were you looking to sell the business? How do you find the right partner? Educate us. I mean, basically, uh, uh, when when COVID hit, I remember we were thinking, okay, so uh, we really, really, really need to make sure that we grow our revenues now. And you know, uh, what one part of our of our revenue stream was advertising, and that's clearly the first thing that people cut back on when when the pandemic hit. But the bizarre thing is that we came, we came out of COVID way stronger than we went into it. I guess coming back to this hustler thing, like the team properly hustled, and uh, we came out as a stronger company. And then what happened was. All of a sudden, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why, but uh, I started getting these phone calls from other companies, uh, larger incumbents, or or in the crypto space. You know, asking, "Hey, you know, have you thought about you know joining us, or would you be open to it?" And and I always said, "Nah, not really." I genuinely really enjoy what I'm what I'm doing at Finimize. Like, I really really enjoy it, and there's so much stuff that we still want to do. No, I'm not done yet. And then basically what happened was that uh, Stephen, who's the CEO of, uh, of Aberdeen, he and his team, they reached out. And the funny thing was that Stephen found out about us through an Instagram ad. We served him an Instagram ad, I guess. It's the best ROI on, a, on an ad from Facebook ever, yeah. Exactly. He downloaded the app and he was, and he was like, I love this. This needs to be part of, of what we're building here at Aberdeen. And uh, we started talking. I think for me, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I really care about gut feel and um, and personal relations and, and 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 stuff like that. And that was, I think, something. Come just very briefly coming back to this VC stuff. I had VCs around me and investors around me. I had phenomenal relationships with all of them, and that was so so helpful in hindsight, going through ups and downs. And for me, it was clear, okay, I need to have a really good relationship with the people who I will be working with um, because at the end of the day, there's going to be not multiple shareholders. If someone buys the company, there's going to be one shareholder. So I need to have a certain rapport uh, with them. And I think the key thing was, you know, then you start meeting for dinners and you start talking and, you know, it's a it's a whole process. And uh, when we when I said, hey, you know, I want to continue building this. We have a pretty long product roadmap that that we still want to execute on. I just want to be really clear: if we were to join the group, we can continue to build this product roadmap, right? And, he, and then his response was, "Absolutely, we don't want to touch it. We don't want to mess up what what you guys have built here. Uh, we just want you to be part of our journey." And I think once that was established, uh, and once we started to understand, hey, there's this mothership figuratively speaking, that we could dock onto and get certain resources, but still we would have our own startup world and we could operate like a startup and be operationally independent. 
Once that started, and, and, and you know, it's easy to say, uh, but once I started to believe that what they said they're actually going to do, that's when I said, hey, you know, okay, fine, let's talk and uh, let's see, you know, what, what are you guys trying to build? What are we trying to build? There was one slide that, that uh, you can also see in the earnings report. It says, you know, they, the Aberdeen wants to enable its customers to be better investors through their products. And we always say internally, Finimize, we want our uh, customers to become smarter investors. And if you could link those two things up, perhaps something really powerful could happen. And uh, then we started the whole process. Uh, we... We were not looking to sell. We were not running a process where we were saying, hey, you know, we're going to get someone else engaged and uh, then we're going to start this whole mega process. No, we said, hey, you know, these guys seem like they're genuine about what, what they want to do. It seems to be a good fit. We're just going to talk to them. If, if, we're not, if this doesn't work out, then we'll just continue doing what we're doing. It's also fine. So we, in, at the end of last year, in uh, end of October, beginning of November, we, we sold 100% of uh, Finimize to Aberdeen. And we continue, like I say, to operate independently. We have our own systems, we have our own entity, et cetera, et cetera. But we get to tap into their HR, we get to tap into their legal, we get to tap into their some of their distribution networks. And then for me personally, I, uh, I joined the leadership team of Aberdeen and I took on a very smart group of people, uh, a group of economists, the research team, and they now report into me and uh, those things will, it's an independent entity from Finimize, but I think there's a lot of interesting cross synergies that we can leverage. And my, my sort of ultimate aim here and, and my vision is that I want to help build a powerhouse of insights that will propel us to becoming the number one investment house, hopefully uh, in the coming years. And how has that transition been for you, right? So going from scrappy startup founder to building a scale-up to now I think I read in the notes you are the uh, youngest FTSE 100 uh, board member, right? Uh, not board member, but uh, uh, management, uh, so executive, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, you know, semantics. Young guy done good. Uh, what's it like being, you know, I guess small fish, big pond, like however you want to describe it. This is a this is a transition, right? This is a growth opportunity for you. Um, how are you handling it so far? Well, I think I think the first thing is uh, I've never really worked in a corporate. I am, like I said, I worked. Just maybe, be honest with us. Are you a terrible employee? People always entrepreneurs always say that. Uh, I don't think I am, but you probably would have to ask St- Stephen if I am. I actually just asked him and he said, you're absolutely awful. Uh, horrible, horrible guy. No, I mean, because I think at the end of the day, I don't know, sometimes I think people who say, oh, I'm a, I'm a horrible employee is also being a bit diva would be my view on that. You know, at the end of the day, if there's someone who's, who's, who's reasonable who you're working with and you understand the decision process, then I think you're in a good position, right? Uh, uh, and for me, I try to just employ or apply rather entrepreneurial thinking to this corporate and hopefully instill a bit of that thinking into the broader organization. And that's, and that's pretty fun, right? And that's quite exciting uh, because you basically, you can kind of take what you've learned on, on these multiple journeys that have gone on uh, in the entrepreneurial world and apply them to a 200-year organization. And there's a pretty big impact that you can have. One of the things that... that uh, that we kind of talked about where we were doing the, the deal also was, you know, how will the team feel about this? 
when I thought about, I took it away and I thought about it, and 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 this is very much true for me as, as well. Is why do people join a startup? Yes, everybody has a bit of a lottery ticket in equity, and you know, in our case, every single employee had had equity in the business. Yes, there's that, but certainly in the case of Finimize, most people take a pay cut when they join us. Uh, so there must be something grander why they join us. It's because they believe in what we're building. It's because they believe in the mission. And if you really, I think, boil it down, in my view at least, it's because people want to have an impact. People want to get out of bed in the morning, they want to go to work, and they want to feel like, A, the work that I'm doing is having an impact on this company, and the company is having an impact on this world. That fundamentally, I think, drives us. And now we have the opportunity to have an impact on a much larger scale, and that's pretty cool. So that's why we did it. That makes a lot of sense. What about like on a personal feedback level then? So you've had to develop a lot as a leader. You've gone through a startup journey. Um, very rare for a startup leader to go through a journey. Uh, like you have across two businesses and then into two exits. So also a two out of two um, without taking on board some feedback and growth opportunities for yourself. So what are some of the um, areas that you've had to personally develop in your journey? What are the things you think you did badly years ago that you do a lot better now? Yeah, so when I, I mean, when I was in my twenties, like I, like I was saying at the start of this conversation, I think a lot of the things that I thought were important now I think probably are not important, and 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 the inverse is actually important. So, for example, I used to think all the soft factors are just how did they say Wall Street, Wolf of Wall Street for Guzzi for Gazi or whatever it is, and I was just like, you know, people who come here, they need to work as hard as I do, and like if they don't, then they don't want this as badly as I do and they don't really deserve a seat at the table kind of thing. That was, I think, very simplified, probably the mindset that I had at the time. And what you end up having is a, is a culture that is actually not that cool to work at. <laughs> and, uh, and people don't enjoy working there, and you're kind of missing the oil that, that runs the machine, if you see what I mean. I had to learn that, hey, actually, you know what, the really important things, are, I actually think now that there's a fantastic book by uh, this American football coach called Bill Walsh, says that the score will take care of itself. And what basically what, what he says in his book is, if you get all the soft factors right, the hard factors will fall in place. If your team is high performing, if they know what the goals are, et cetera, et cetera, you don't need to worry, you will hit your goals, you will get those financial results, but you need to make sure that the soft factors are in place. So I think that's something that I, that I, that I had to learn. And then I think one of the things that, that, you know, if you are an entrepreneur, part of the reason why you want to start a company or do, is because you see something that you want to realize and because you just want to go. And I think the more you scale the teams and also now that you start working in larger corporations, the more you realize, no, you need to take people on this journey with you and if you don't take people on this journey with you, then you're going to be standing alone in the woods and nobody's going to be able to help you. Uh, so you need everybody to be bought into what you're doing. And that sometimes, and this I think I also have to learn, sometimes that takes time. Most entrepreneurs are very impatient people and just want to get it done, 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 done. And some of these things, if it involves people, you need to take them on the journey and you need to be willing to invest the time to get them on that journey. I, th I think those would be the key things that, I, that I've learned. What are you still struggling to learn? What are the things that, and actually, you know, it's fascinating in, in terms of, you know, now being part of a FTSE 100 as well. What are the opportunities for you to learn ahead of you that you just don't, don't feel like you know yet, but looking back in five years, you're going to be like, wow, so glad I picked that up. 
I would certainly say uh, uh, the latter point that I made, you know, I had to learn that in, through my own companies. And now I have to learn that at an even larger scale. You know, there's like 6,000 people working at Aberdeen. Um, and I uh, have, have to learn that at scale, taking people on a journey. You know, that's a completely new uh, a challenge and adventure. And then I think the other thing probably is, this is something that I think, I hope maybe one day I can say I'm really good at, but is this idea of just like really focusing, really, really focusing. And, and I still find it difficult oftentimes to say no to things. There is this... Uh, I think really great video that you can watch on YouTube from uh, Johnny Ive where he's like, the way that Steve Jobs explained focus is like, if you really think this is the right thing to do, you really, really believe this is the an area that you need to work on and, and still you say no, that is focus. Um, and so obviously, you know, working in tech, I couldn't have gone without referencing Steve Jobs. So, so there you have it. You're the guy who runs an investment community to help people understand where to responsibly put in their money. So what have you done? How can we follow in your footsteps? How does your investment strategy, has your investment strategy changed would be my first question actually, since it already was. And can you share some insight, I guess, to the level you're comfortable about how you think about it for yourself? So I think there's a couple of things. So I think the first thing is, the higher up you go in terms of, I guess, the investable assets that you have, uh, it's almost like a video game, right? Uh, like the higher up you go, the more it unlocks certain asset classes. <laughs> so, you know, if you have a hundred pounds on your on your bank account, maybe you can buy a fractional share or ETF or whatever. Uh, if you have a million on your bank account, then maybe you can buy a flat or a house or whatever. Uh, then, if you have, I don't know, maybe ten million then maybe you can start doing startup investments, private asset class. If you have 100 million, you can start doing uh, PE investments, venture capital investments directly, right? Now you're starting to see, I think this, this is, these asset classes are starting to get more fluid, which I think is really interesting because I think from my experience and, and having spoken to a range of people in the space, founders, et cetera, and, and finance um, professionals, uh, there tends to be these uh, two worlds, right? So the first world is public markets. And then if you have financial means, then you get to the next world, which is private markets. And what you find is that, at least that's the that's the theory, uh, and, and I think uh, this was very much implemented by uh, a gentleman who ran the Yale Endowment, which was one of the best endowment funds ever. And so his whole point was, if you have a lot of money, and obviously then an endowment has a lot, a lot of money, <laughs> and you don't need that money, then you should invest it into illiquid asset classes. Because if you are operating in an efficient market, then that means that because that asset class that you're investing in is illiquid, you should and will get a premium for that illiquidity. And so as a result, you will have higher returns by investing into these private illiquid asset classes. And typically that means you have a time horizon of 10 to 12 years. Um, and so I think what you see is the, the, the more investable assets someone has, the more exposure they can, and some would say should, get to these private asset classes. Now the interesting thing is that a lot of these asset classes, you know, you have 
the democratization now of, of startups with the crowdfunding. You have the democratization of PE and VC with things like Moonfair. You have asset classes now. You have all these alternative asset classes like art and collectibles where people are... The private market, that's the interesting thing. I think that's probably the, the biggest trend. I think the next wave of fintech, in my view at least, is there's been a lot of innovation on the public market side. The, the big innovation is going to be in the private market side. And that all of a sudden, it levels the playing field and people start having access to, the, to these asset classes where previously you had to be much more well off to get access to. Great. Okay, Max, uh, coming to the end of the interview, I have the uh, same question I ask most guests, which is, what is one piece of advice you have for listeners that want to go on a similar path to you? So I think the one piece of advice would be to not overthink it, to go with the flow, and in hindsight, things will somehow work out if you do something that you genuinely care about, that you're passionate about, and then you put a lot of hard work into it. Uh, I think our university systems, our school systems, etc., they they do two things that I think are counterproductive to going on the entrepreneurial route. Number one, they teach you that failure and mistakes are wrong. And without that, as we discussed, you cannot have any kind of success. So we need to remove that out of the equation. Uh, and then I think the second piece is uh, that you need to also somehow believe and follow in your gut and uh, then great things will happen. Amazing. Max, thank you so much for your time. Fantastic. Thanks. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. We had all these members signed up. We got a ton of press attention. And we had, I remember one day alone, we had four and a half thousand people signed up early stages. And I remember the very first angel pitch I gave, the feedback was, oh, maybe you and another thousand people will sign up to this. This will never scale from, from some of the investors. So hence, clearly we have gone beyond that by now. That was Borrow My Doggy founder Ricky Rosalind, who created the well-known startup after taking care of a neighbor's pooch. Now, you probably know that I'm a cat person, generally speaking, but I'm willing to make an exception for an old friend like Ricky, who explains how you can get strangers on the internet to trust other strangers to look after their beloved pets. Tune in next week or you'll miss out. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media, with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, bringing it all together.